First John chapter three. We've been making our way through this letter that John wrote to not just one church, but to all Christians, even Christians living in the 20th century. And as John uh, wrote this letter to us all, and we've been making our way through it, we noticed uh, last week that he really had an emphasis on righteousness and having a right-on walk with the Lord and having a moral purity in our lives. If you take a look at verse 9, and this is just the verse with which we concluded last week, he says, Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him. And he cannot sin because he has been born of God. And we discussed last week how when John says that he does not sin, it doesn't refer to occasional acts of sin. It talks about a settled, habitual lifestyle of sin. And John's trying to tell us that when we come to Jesus, he changes us. And he makes us to where we can no longer be comfortable in that settled lifestyle of habitual sin. And he had this whole theme of righteousness, how we need to walk in a right manner with the Lord. But have you ever noticed something about people who are really concerned with righteousness? What do they oftentimes lack in their lives? Love. You know, sometimes people who have a real zeal for, well, let's walk right and let's get all the sin of our, out of our lives and let's be holy unto the Lord. Many times the same people who have a great passion for that have a real lack of love in their lives for the brethren. And that's why John sort of shifts gears just a little bit. Maybe it's not fair to call it a shifting of gears. It's more of a transition into verse 10 where he begins. And let's take a look at this together. He says, in this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Now, can I just tell you right away, I'm blown away by verse 10. And I I think you should be too. Because John has already spoken to us about the idea that there are some people who are children of God. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God. And, well, praise the Lord, God has his children, and they live in this reciprocal love relationship with him. And he's already spoken of some people being of the devil. Chapter 3, verse 8, he says, he who sins is of the devil. But here, John makes it even more plain. And doesn't this make you squirm just a little bit in your seat when he says this? He says, listen, there's some people who are children of God, and there's some people who are children of the devil. Man, John, tell us how you really feel. Don't hold back on us now. Now, can I just bring up a point right away that I think is interesting? John does not spend any time trying to prove or explain the existence of the devil. Some people don't believe in the devil. I find it very interesting that some people believe in God and the God of the Bible, but they don't believe in the devil. Now, friends, the Bible just tells us that the devil's real. John accepts the existence, the reality of the devil as a biblical fact. And some people don't understand that the Bible clearly teaches us. But I'll tell you what else. If anybody was reading this letter of 1 John, you tell me, is this a letter about Jesus Christ or is this a letter about the devil? Well, it's a letter about Jesus Christ. 
And John refers to the devil. John mentions the devil, but he's not obsessed with him. And there's a lot of people out in the Christian world today who do not have the same wisdom that John has. Either they deny the existence of the devil, they ignore him, they act like he doesn't exist. It's, well, who cares? It's, it's not out there. He could never impact my life. But then there's other people who go to the other extreme and they're obsessed with the devil. I've met people who are Christians who seem more interested in the devil than in Jesus Christ. It's like, what's going on with that? So you see, John won't let us get off on either extreme. Yes, there is a devil, but my friends, we're not to be obsessed with the devil. We're to be focused on Jesus Christ. Now, again, John makes it very plain. Some people are children of God and some people are children of the devil. Do you think that John's a little too harsh in saying that some people are children of the devil? Come on, John. Can't we all just get along? Why can't we just love each other? Why can't we just love each other like Jesus did? I mean, could you ever imagine Jesus looking somebody in the eye and saying, you're a child of the devil? I mean, that's not something that the loving Lord that we all worship would ever do, is it? Um, Matter of fact, it is. Keep a finger there in 1 John chapter 3. I want you to turn with me to the Gospel of John chapter 8. You know, one of the exciting things as you study the Bible is you just see how connected it is. How, how uh, if you want to use kind of a fancy word, how it's integrated. It all works together. And in the Gospel of John chapter 8, we see something that was probably on John's mind when he was writing this. John chapter 8, verse 41. Jesus said, and he's speaking to the religious leaders of his day, you do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. By the way, can I just make a comment here on verse 41? That's a very revealing statement there in verse 41. Do you know what they're saying to Jesus? Let me put it to you this way. Today, most all Christians and If they don't believe it, they should believe it, because I think it's one of the essentials of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But today, Christians believe, really, without much trouble, the virgin birth. But if you think about it for a moment, it's pretty fantastic, isn't it? You know, a young girl in the youth group turns up pregnant, and everybody's concerned. And the youth leader goes and talks to her and sits down, now tell me about this, dear, you know, what went on? You know, who's the boy? And she says, It was the Holy Spirit. How would we react in our day? There would be wide disbelief, to say the least. Well, friends, in Jesus' day, it was a real burden for Mary and for Jesus because people didn't go around saying it was of the Holy Spirit. They believed that Jesus was born of fornication. That's why, believe me, Jesus' enemies knew this. You know, today when there's a political battle, what do you do? You go research your enemies and you dig up any kind of dirt you can find on them. And even if you got a lie or, or twist a fact, you do it. And that's what Jesus' enemies do. Can you see the sneer on their face as they look at Jesus and say, we were not born of fornication. If I was Jesus, I would have burnt them to toast right then, calling down fire from heaven. But Jesus doesn't do it that way. Look at verse 42. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. Listen to this. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. 
He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. Wow. I'll venture to say that there's some of you who are surprised to hear these words in Jesus' mouth. You kind of say, man, I never knew Jesus could talk like that to somebody. Now, might I say that Jesus doesn't talk like this to the lowly sinner who wants to get their life right with God? Jesus talks like this to the proud religious rulers who were rejecting him. And he looks at them square in the eye and he says, you are of your father, the devil. Well, my friends, the same idea is carried forth back in 1 John chapter 3, verse 10, when John says, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. In other words, we can know who are the children of God and the children of the devil. How do you know? Take a look at the end of verse 10. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Now, can I just say that both of these are essential? Righteousness without love will make you just a religious Pharisee. A hypercritical, holier than thou. I'm looking down on the whole world because I'm so righteous. That's what it'll make you. But then aren't there other people who have love, and I put love in parentheses, so to speak, love without righteousness? Oh, you know, we don't need to have standards. We don't need to... Uh, follow after the Lord and what he says about how we should live. Let's just love one another. Well, my friends, you see, uh, if we have righteousness without love, then we're just holier-than-thou religious Pharisees. If we have love without righteousness, then we're just partners in evil. John says, if we are born of God, you're going to see both of those in our lives, both love and righteousness. Now, how do the two balance out? You know, in a lot of things in the Christian life, we're looking for balance, aren't we? So how do you find the balance between love and righteousness? Can I just tell you right now? You don't. There is no balance between love and righteousness. Because to say that there's a balance between love and righteousness implies that they're kind of like opposites. That they're kind of different ends of the same spectrum. My friends, they don't balance. They go together. The greatest love is concern for righteousness. The greatest righteousness always has love before it. We are never to love at the expense of righteousness, and we're never to be righteous at the expense of love. Friends, we're not looking for a balance between love and righteousness because they're not opposites. Real love is the greatest righteousness, and real righteousness is the greatest love. Let me explain it to you this way. Let's say you have a person who is all focused on love and not righteousness. And uh, they're in a relationship, a boyfriend-girlfriend relationship. They're not married. And they say, we love each other, we love each other, we love each other. We love each other so much that we're going to have intimate relations outside of God's plan for marriage. Uh, I just am compelled to do this because I love her so much. You love her so much that you're going to lead her into sin, that you're going to endanger your future relationship, and that you're going to, together with her, commit an offense against God that may have repercussions not just in all of this time, but into eternity. Now that's love, isn't it? Friends, that's not real love at all, is it? 
So to say that, well, I'm so loving that it may cost me or I may not be able to be righteous. Friends, that's not real love, is it? Real love would say, I want the best for you. And the best means we're going to walk together before the Lord. Well, how about somebody who claims to be very righteous? I'm so righteous that I'm sick and tired of all the sin that's around me. And and I'm going to judge this person. I'm going to condemn that person. We got to start, you know, uh, kicking it around here so that we can have some righteousness. And we might stand back and say, oh my, that person has a heart for righteousness. But friends, is that really righteousness? It's not. Real righteousness reflects the character and the heart of God. Real righteousness is going to show love. So when John says, verse 10 again, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother, he's really talking about the same thing. And if you want to know what I'm talking about, look at the life of Jesus. Love and righteousness are both most perfectly displayed in the nature of Jesus. He was both completely righteous and completely loving. Now let's go on to verse 11. He says, For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Oh, John loves to get back to the beginning. John's always going back to the beginning. And he's saying, listen, ever since we were Christians, ever since we were following after Jesus, he was telling us to love one another. John says, uh, thinking in his mind perhaps, I remember one of the first sermons I heard Jesus preach. He told me that I had to love my enemy. He said, I didn't know if I was going to follow him anymore after he said that, but Jesus said that I had to love my enemy. And then John would think, I remember on the day that, that Jesus brought us all together on the night before he was betrayed and we all had the last supper together and he gave to us the most beautiful sermon and he said that I give you a new commandment, a commandment that you must love one another. Again, John is remembering the command of Jesus back in John 13, 34, the gospel of John, where he says, a new commandment I give to you by this, the whole world will know you're my disciples if you love one another. Friends, the basic Christian message has not changed, that we should love one another. Perhaps some people have thought that, well, you know, we talk a lot about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, right? And we should. You need to have a personal relationship with Jesus. It's you and Jesus. That's where your eternal destiny is settled, right? Between you and Jesus. Some people have thought that the whole Christian life is just a me and Jesus kind of thing. Hey, I love the Lord. I love Jesus. It's just all those rotten Christians I can't get along with. And you say, oh, but I love the Lord. I love the Lord. You know what John is saying? He's saying to anybody who says that, friend, at best you're phony. I'll just lay it right down on the line. You can't love Jesus without loving his people. Now, I'm not saying it's going to be all peaches and cream with his people. Sometimes that love is going to be a hard-fought love, a love that has to be won through forgiveness and restoration and and loving one another and loving each other despite some of the things that go on. But that love is going to be there. Friends, how we treat each other, how we love one another really matters before God. He says that we should love one another. Friends, it's a message we've heard from the beginning. It's a message we need to hear time and time again. I heard of a pastor in Latin America who God greatly used in a remarkable revival. And at one point in the revival, he stood up before his congregation and the church was packed. And he got up there and he said, and I don't know if he read this exact verse, but it was something like this. And he said, for this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And then he sat down. That's all he did. 
No preaching, no sermon. He read that verse and he sat down. Everybody just sat, looking around the church. What did we do? Then they all kind of filed out. Next week, he gets up there and he stands for the congregation. He gets up there and he goes, For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not a word more. He sits down. He does it for two or three weeks. By this time, the elders in the church are getting a little bit concerned. You know, what, is he playing golf all week? Doesn't have time to prepare a sermon? What's going on? No, but the message was plain and God was moving among that congregation because he said, listen, if we're not doing this, why should I go any further? When I start seeing that we're doing it, then we'll move on from here. But until I see that we're making progress on this, what's the point of going any further? Let's just emphasize it time and time again. This is the message that we've heard from the beginning. Now, we learn so often by good examples, don't we? But we can also learn from bad examples. So in verse 12, John's going to give us a bad example of loving one another. And that's in the person of Cain. He says uh, at the end of verse 11 that we should love one another not as Cain who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers were righteous. So as a negative example, John presents Cain, who was not right with God. As a matter of fact, his works were evil. Cain hated his brother Abel. Now, when there are two children of God who are both right with God, there's going to be love. But here you had Abel. Was Abel right with God? Yes, he was. Was Cain right with God? No, he wasn't. That's why there was conflict between the two. You know, a lot of times when I see conflict in the Christian church between two people, there's there's not love going on. Sometimes we wish it was as cut and dry and saying, well, it's a Cain and Abel situation. Here's righteous and here's unrighteous. But usually, usually it's two Cains fighting with each other, isn't it? And we both got to see, well, look, there's, there's wrong, there's sin, there's, there's error on both sides. Let's just forgive one another and patch it up. But friends, there can be situations where it is a Cain and Abel thing. And Cain is an excellent negative example of the failure to love. You know, I imagine that Cain had a godly upbringing. You know, his parents were saved. Oh, yes, my friends, Adam and Eve were saved. Did you know that? Did you know that you're going to see Adam and Eve in heaven? You know how I know? Because they let the Lord cover them with his righteousness. Do you know what I mean by that? Well, you remember that whole fig leaf thing? You know, Adam and Eve, they tried to make these lame outfits for themselves out of fig leaves. And, you know, which is just crazy to begin with because they're small, number one. I don't know how you sew together fig leaves. Number two, they're itchy. Good heavens, what are they thinking? <laughs> so it was a totally inadequate garment. But at the end of Genesis chapter 3, it tells us, that the Lord God made coverings for Adam and Eve out of the skins of animals. And friends, if he made it out of the skins of animals, that meant animals had to die. There had to be a sacrifice to cover Adam and Eve. I believe Adam and Eve were saved. Cain grew up in a saved household, yet he, he chose not to follow in the paths of his mom and dad. Cain's disobedience came from a lack of faith. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that the reason why Cain's offering was not accepted because it wasn't accompanied by faith. And that faith first resulted in disobedience. Cain first disobeyed the Lord because of his lack of faith. Then hatred arose in his heart. Friends, the Bible also tells us that Cain's disobedience and his hatred was based in pride. It was pride. 
You see, it wasn't so much that his sacrifice was rejected by God. Cain could live with that. What really bugged him? Well, that his brother's sacrifice was accepted. It wasn't so much that Cain was sorry that his sacrifice was rejected. He was angry because his brother's sacrifice was accepted. His disobedience and his hatred was based in pride. I want you to know also that Cain's disobedience and hatred made him miserable. Friends, when we have people in the church following in the way of Cain, they don't love their brethren. It's usually rooted in pride. And it's usually making them miserable. Oh, do you see those joyful Christians who don't get along with their brothers and sisters? Joyful? No. Oh, they may laugh it up. They may have an exterior that's filled with, oh, happiness and and laughter, and they like to joke around. But you don't have to scratch very deep at all to see the deep pain in their heart. Friends, Cain's disobedience and hatred made him miserable. The Bible says that his countenance was lowered. And Cain also refused the warning that God gave him, and he gave in to the sin of hatred. Do you remember that in Genesis chapter 4, where the Lord came to Cain and said, Cain, why is your countenance fallen? Why do you look so sad? If you do right, you'll be accepted. But watch out, because sin is crouching at the door. It's waiting to devour you. And friends, sadly, what did Cain do? He gave in to sin. He refused the warning that God gave him. And maybe this morning, this is your wake-up call. Maybe this morning, this is your warning. Maybe you've been allowing a hatred and a bitterness to come up in your heart towards your brothers and sisters. And right now, today, this is your warning. God's showing his goodness towards you and saying, hey, don't do it. Sin is crouching at the door. Friends, I fear for you if you reject God's warning and go out today with an unchanged heart. If you just say, well, yeah, the love one another thing, blah, blah, blah. I've heard that before on Sunday morning. Yeah, but if the Lord knew only how much they burned me, it would be different. My friends, the Lord knows how much they burned you and he knows that they burned his son more and he wants you to forgive and to let it go in the name of Jesus Christ and move on from that place of bitterness and to love one another. Oh, my friends, don't don't refuse the warning that God gives you because you may end up like Cain because Cain's sin of hatred led him to action against the one that he hated. He ended up striking him down. And I tell you one more thing about the sin of Cain that I think find is a common ground with the sin of other people today. Cain was evasive about his sin. You know, almost every Christian that I've ever seen in, in my own times in my life where I've battled with, with, well, I just cut it straight, where I've battled with hatred towards other brothers and sisters. I've almost always been evasive about it. If somebody were to come to me and say, David, are you battling with hatred towards his brother or sister? Are you, would I cop to that? Are you kidding? That doesn't sound very spiritual. I'd be evasive, just like Cain was. Remember what Cain said? Hey, am I my brother's keeper? Well, friends, this evasiveness that we often have when we're confronted by sin, we think that maybe we can escape what God's trying to do in our hearts, you know? Maybe we can hide. Maybe we can sort of fake him out if we move real quick. Don't be evasive, my friends. Find the freedom, find the liberation. There's a confessing your sin and get it cleared away. When the Lord comes and is speaking to your heart and saying, listen, I'm dealing with you on this, don't say, well, Lord, you must be speaking to the person in back of me. You got the wrong row, Lord. It's a row behind me. No, don't evade it. Don't be evasive, but just, just, just refuse to hide it because God will find you out just like he found Cain out. All right, let's conclude here. We're going to take a look at verses 13, 14, and 15 together. 
John says, do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. (laughs) John says, don't marvel when the world hates you. You know, it shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't surprise us when we're there at the job and those people who don't know the Lord yet, they they mock us or they think we're goofy for what we do uh, in following after the Lord. That shouldn't surprise us, should it? Sometimes we act all shocked and offended. How could they speak to me that way? Well, don't be surprised. But I tell you, we, we should be surprised when there's hatred among the body of Christ. That should surprise us. We should go, wow, what's going on there? That has no place among God's people. Because, my friends, when we've passed from death to life, it's evident in the fact that we love the brethren. Don't you love that phrase in verse 14? We've passed from death to life. Friends, a love for the people of God is a basic sign of being born again. If this love is not evident in our lives, you can fairly question your salvation. But if it is present, it gives us assurance. It gives you assurance to know, hey, there is this presence of the love of God in my life for the other people in the body of Christ. I know that I've passed from death to life. Friends, I want you to notice something too. This this place of hatred, of jealousy, of bitterness that you find yourself in, that's a place of death. You need to pass from death unto life. And that's the reverse of the normal, isn't it? Hey, every one of us knows that we're going to pass from this life to death, right? We all know that. That's how things normally go. But in Jesus Christ, he turns it around. We can pass from death to life. And friends, if if we have, then it's going to be evident in our love for the brethren. Now, I know that maybe some of you are saying, but David, if you only knew how I had been treated by those other Christians, if you only knew then, then you'd really understand, well, I don't want to have anything to do with the church. You'd understand. If you knew, if you could have been in my, you'd be in the same place. And my friends, I, I know something of that wounding that you're talking about, but I'm here to tell you that even if we've been bruised and battered by unloving brethren, there is still going to be something drawing you back to fellowship with the brethren you love. Oh, I'm not saying that it doesn't hurt. I'm not saying that we don't get scraped and bruised along the way. I'm just saying that if we pass from death to life, there's a principle of love for the brethren that's alive in your life that just like a magnet keeps drawing you back. And that's how it should be. Because as he says, if you notice later on in verse 14, he says, he who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. To hate our brother is to murder him in our hearts. I know what you're saying. You might say, David, I've never wished that person dead. Or maybe you have, but maybe you never have. But friends, you know, when you hate somebody, when you allow that bitterness and resentment just to well up, it's, it's, it's just the same as murdering them in a sense. Of course, it's not as terrible as murdering them. To murder them actually would be a much worse sin. But yet, it's not right to have in your heart that bitterness, that resentment. 
Friends, you could just wish that person dead. And it's no compliment to you that they live just because uh, you're uh, a coward or you're afraid of getting punished. That's no compliment to any of us. Or we may wish that person dead in another way. Did you know that by ignoring another person, you can treat them as if they were dead? And that's virtually the same as wishing them dead. Friends, in the heart, there's no difference. To hate is to despise. To hate is to cut somebody off from relationship. And murder is simply the ultimate fulfillment of that attitude. And so to live in the practice of murder or to have a lifestyle of the habitual hatred of our brethren, it's a demonstration that we do not have eternal life abiding in us, that we're not born again. Friends, I need to bring a very pointed question here. In light of what we're talking about, do you know that you have eternal life abiding in you? Do you know it? You know, John has given us uh, three distinct tests to know by whether or not we're Christians in this whole letter. He gives us the, the moral test. He says, there's going to be a change in the way that we live our lives if we're following after Jesus Christ. He gives us the doctrine test. He says, listen, if, if, uh, if we're really following Jesus, if we've really been changed by him, we're going to believe certain things. But he also gives us the love test. And friends, I... I would want everybody here this morning to leave having an assurance of the salvation they have in Jesus Christ. Do you know that there's many people for whom being a Christian is sort of a a none-of-the-above kind of thing? They consider themselves Christians because, well, they they got the boxes in their mind. Let's see, I'm not a Muslim, I'm I'm not Jewish, uh, I'm not a Buddhist, I'm not an atheist, I must be a Christian, Friends, being a Christian is never a none-of-the-above kind of thing. And being a Christian is more than just saying, I am a Christian. Can we just recognize the fact that there are some people who claim to be Christians who are not? Now, how can you know if you're one of these people who claim to be a Christian, but you're not? Wouldn't that be a terrible thing? To walk around saying, claiming, I'm a Christian, but you're not. Friends, again, there's three tests. There's a constant and simple reply from John. There's the truth test, the love test, and the moral test. If we believe in what Jesus teaches it's true, if we show the love of Jesus to others, and if our conduct has been changed and is becoming more like Jesus, then our claim to be a Christian can be proven true. Now, you know, on a day like today, Palm Sunday, I can't help but think about that crowd surrounding Jesus coming into the city of Jerusalem. And many of them were filled with praise. Many of them, oh, Jesus, Jesus, we love you. Hosanna, save now. They were saying the words, but it didn't cut very deep to their hearts because I assure you there were some of those same people who were standing by the roadside, waving the palm branches, crying out, save now, saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Some of those same people were in that mob that cried out, crucify him. We have no Lord but Caesar. My friends, let's not be that way. When we cry out to the Lord and say, save now, Let it be with a sincere heart that has our hearts truly changed and has our hearts changed into a heart of love for the Lord and for his people. My friends, if you really love Jesus Christ, it's going to show up in a love for his people. 
And so I recommend to you this, you this this morning. If you really want to love your brothers and sisters in the body of Christ more, maybe you're focusing too much on them. Maybe you're focused on them and saying, I got to love them. I got to love them. I got to love them. You keep thinking about them. Let me tell you, if you think about any one of us, it's hard to love us, isn't it? (laughs) But if you focus on Jesus Christ, it's a lot easier to love them, isn't it? It's a lot easier to say, listen, Lord, you put this love in my heart. I want to love other people. I want to draw close to you, and you give me the resources to love one another. And by that, we'll know and have this assurance that we're really walking after the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come before your throne this morning with so much gratitude. And uh, we don't want to be as those who, with an empty confession, cried out to Jesus, save now, or blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Lord, we want to call before you now and, uh, Lord, just tell you how much we love you and how much we need you. So, Lord God, won't you do this change in our hearts? Won't you make us a, a people who who really do love you more, who really do praise you more. And in the midst of loving you more, in the midst of praising you more, we ask you, Lord, to draw our hearts into a greater love for one another. I pray, Lord, that whoever here this morning has been burdened by bitterness or resentment or hatred for other people in the body of Christ, I pray that you'd set them free from that this morning, that they would just find a sense of release and that they'd come to you and have that sin forgiven and just be set free. That they would truly, in this area of their life, pass from death unto life. Lord, I pray that as you deal with every heart here and as you guide them to you, Lord, when we are changed by you, that you'd give us that beautiful assurance. Because we want to be among that, that crowd crying out, Hosanna, calling out our love for you, Lord, and doing it with a true heart, with a sincere heart, not a heart that would turn around a few days later and say, crucify him. Help us, Lord. We love you this morning and praise you in Jesus' name.